Acts chapter 2. We are talking today about the meaning of Pentecost. A huge text in front of us today from Acts chapter 2. The meaning of Pentecost. Reminding us that as a church we are in the season that we're calling a spring in the spirit. You remember this winter has been horrible. We are declaring it spring. And as a church we believe that God is bringing us into a spring in the spirit. Spring denotes new life and freshness and growth and things springing up as we're watered by God's spirit. So we're in the midst of this. Uh, The study of the book of Acts is part of that. Emphasis on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is part of that. Tuesday night gatherings is part of that. Reading Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire together is part of that. If you haven't been here the last two weeks, we gave away 800 copies to you, the church of that book. We're reading two chapters a week together. So you guys read chapters uh, three and four this last week. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, cool. And uh, if you didn't get a copy, we have some copies out by the Connect desk when you leave. But we're going through Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire together as a church. Make sure you just read two chapters a week to keep on pace. I've already talked to people who read the book twice in the two weeks that we gave them the book. I myself finished it and couldn't stop. So um, a time of spring in the spirit. And, and, and today's text uh, about Pentecost and the meaning of Pentecost is an important part of that. We'll study all the way through to the end of verse 13 today, but just start, we'll just read the first four verses. I'm reading and preaching from the New American Standard Bible, and it says in Acts 2, verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Christ, as we come to you now, we we place ourselves under the authority of your word. We believe the Bible to be the very word of God. The inerrant, absolute truth of God, which is living and active, the only rule and authority for the way that we live and think and behave and act and proceed as a church. So we place ourselves under your word's authority. And we do so with humility and with trust. We say together to you, Father, that we trust you and what you reveal about yourself in your word and the way that you work by your spirit in the way that you're moving in our church, we say together that we trust you for surely you are good, good father and you give only good gifts. So we come to you with humility under the authority of your word. We come to you with expectancy because you are good and you want to give us good things in and through your word. And we ask together that you would give us ears to hear and a desire to obey, to press into and live out the truth of your word. We ask together that you would now fill me with your Holy Spirit to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to Scripture, honoring to Jesus, and helpful to this family. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Before we get into it, I just want to remind you that a few weeks ago, we did a teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is what we see taking place here in the text, where we went pretty in-depth, a fairly uh, technical teaching on what the baptism of the Spirit is and isn't, and what we might expect and not expect. So that sermon, along with this sermon, kind of work together. I won't be redundant in the things that I say. So if you haven't gotten that sermon, you go to our website. It's right there on the homepage this week. You can get that and listen to that. And that sermon, along with today's, will give us a better understanding of what we're talking about. A little bit of the setting. You'll remember from chapter 1 that Jesus had promised his followers this in Acts 1.8. He said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So in chapter 1, Jesus made that promise to his followers. He also told them this in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, that is, when they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So he made a promise about this experience of the Spirit coming upon his people, that it would cause them to be witnesses for him, but they weren't to do anything along those lines until they experienced that. Now in Acts chapter 2, in our text, the wait is over and the promise is fulfilled. The promise of the Father is being poured out upon the church. And it's full of vivid language and vivid things going on that we can only imagine. But we have to ask the question this morning, what does it mean? What did it mean in particular then to them? And what does it mean to us now? Luke starts off in verse 1 by giving us some clues about the meaning when he tells us, and when the day of Pentecost had come, when the day of Pentecost had come, already it feels a little foreign to us because Pentecost is not that common of a phrase. Pentecost was one of the Jewish feasts proclaimed by God for his people Israel. There were several, there were three for which they were required from all over the world, wherever the Jews were, to come to Israel every year and celebrate, and this was one of them. We read about those feasts in Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16, and other places in the Old Testament. Pentecost is sometimes also called the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest, or our Jewish friends call it Shavuot. Here it's called Pentecost, which is a transliteration of a Greek word that means 50th. So the word Pentecost, meaning 50th, gives us a little clue about timing here. Pentecost, a Jewish celebration, came 50 days after Passover, the Jewish celebration, where Israel was to remember and commemorate and celebrate the fact that they had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and brought into freedom and the promises of God by God himself. 50 days later was this celebration, Pentecost. That's why the word 50th. But what they were celebrating gives us a bit of meaning, not just the timing. Other thing about the timing is you'll remember that Jesus was crucified on Passover. This is 50 days later. Remember that Jesus was with them 40 days and then he ascended and then they prayed and waited on the promise of God for 10 days. This is that 50th day. So there's timing, but what about the meaning? Well, we are told in the Old Testament that Pentecost, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest, 
was all about Israel entering into a time, a season of harvest. Deuteronomy chapter 16. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. So the festival came at the beginning of the summer grain harvest. There was an earlier harvest in the year, in the spring. This is the summer grain harvest. And God is telling them, by the way, it's freezing in here, Ryan. Can you change that, please? Thank you. God is telling them, he's wanting to, Israel to be cognizant of the fact that when they're entering into a harvest, they have God to thank for that. It is God who has brought them into the harvest. He says it in stark language when he says there in verse 12, remember you were slaves in Egypt. He wants them to remember that God has brought them from a place of slavery to a place of harvesting. That's a big change from a place of slavery where they had nothing and gave everything to a place of harvesting where they are engaged in the fruit that God had brought into their lives. So he says, at the beginning of the summer harvest, I want you guys to pause. I want you to bring me an offering from the harvest that you're reaping. I want you to do it, very important phrase in verse 11, in a place that I will call by my name. So there's a certain place where God would manifest his presence in his glory. That's where they were supposed to do it. And it was a reminder that their lives had been radically changed by God. They were no longer slaves. They were harvesters. Now keep that all in mind and then look again what happens next. In verse two, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. This is like creepy, but awesome. There's 120 of them, we know, from the end of chapter one. They've been waiting on the Lord for 10 days, praying because he said, wait until you see power from on high. The promise of the Father is the Spirit coming upon you. You'll receive power. They're waiting. It says that they're sitting. So they're just like having this prayer meeting where they're just sitting. They're waiting on God. And suddenly it says there came something like a violent rushing wind into the room. It doesn't say that it was a violent rushing wind. It was something like, the author is searching for words here. There was some experience that was shaking and denoted by motion and power. It was like a violent wind. And then he says, and then something like tongues of fire. I don't even know what that is. Little fire licky things, like little... And there was fire and they saw it. And then the fire was distributing itself upon each person. They're all sitting there, 121 of them, or 120. And then all of a sudden, just zoom, 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 firehead. We're told that it was like a violent rushing wind. It was like fire. And the reason this is important because Luke wanted to convey to us and wanted to get his readers to get the fact that this is connected with the Old Testament expressions of God's presence coming to his people over and over again. We can see it over and over again in the Old Testament. Two notable places, the institution of the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle 
was a place that God told his people through Moses to build that would be where they would worship God while they were in the Exodus wanderings. He called it the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And God said over and over, there I will meet with you. They built it, and look what we read about the tabernacle in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. So here we have this other Old Testament expression of God's presence coming to where he said he wanted to be with his people and there's expressions of like almost unapproachable power and there's fire, signs of God's presence. Same thing when the temple is built. Later on, the temple was permanized. That's not a word, but it works perfectly. Instead of being the traveling tent of meeting, it was given a permanent location on Mount Zion in Jerusalem In Israel, Solomon built the temple and then he dedicated it. And then we have the same sort of phenomenon happening. Second Chronicles 7. Now when Solomon had finished praying, that's the dedication of the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord saying, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. And by Luke conveying to us the fact that there was this violent motion in the air and that there was fire and that they were filled, he wants us to get in vivid clear in certain terms that God's presence was now among his people, that it wouldn't be contained in the traveling tent anymore. It wouldn't be in the temple in Jerusalem. It wouldn't be confined to any building anywhere, but God's presence was now in his people. Jesus said, I will be with you always. And now he's come in fire and in wind. God's presence is in, among, with, and has come upon his people, all of them together as they're sitting there praying and waiting. Very clear Jewish Old Testament words, the glory of God was with them. And the function here, what's actually happening, is given to us in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, again, we, we talked about that in depth in the previous teaching, what that means. This is a fulfillment of God's Spirit coming upon God's people. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says in continuing verse 4, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. They're filled with the Spirit. This is the upon experience. And I want you to notice that it immediately enables them to do something they previously could not do. There is another supernatural thing going on here. There was something like violent wind. There was something like fire on their heads. And there are foreign languages now coming from their tongues. It says, as the Spirit enabled them. They're filled with the Spirit. God's Spirit comes upon them. And they are enabled 
to do things that they previously could not do. Now, for a particular reason. Again, in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will receive power when my Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Remember, Pentecost, the Old Testament feast, was all about the beginning of a season of harvest. And now, the Spirit coming upon the church on the day of Pentecost, this is the church entering into the season of harvest. You want to say that word now, don't you, now that you got it? Harvest. Remember what Jesus said about a harvest in Matthew chapter 9? Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And that is exactly what is happening when the Spirit comes upon the church is that Christ's followers are being activated, empowered, and propelled into the harvest that God is going to reap. The harvest of souls. Men and women and children being saved. So, it's getting creepy. There's wind. There's fire. There's tongues. The tongues are meant to convey to us, in this instance, something specific about the scope of the harvest. So let's read the following verses now, starting in verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Aren't all these people speaking Galileans? How is it then that we hear each of them in our own languages to which we were born? Now there's a list of nations that they had come from. Verse 9. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and and proselytes. I want you to note that. That's important. It was Jews and converts to Judaism. It was Jews and non-Jews, ethnically, or Gentiles. It says in verse 11, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does it mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. Spirit comes upon the church. It's like a violent wind. There's fire. All of a sudden, they're enabled supernaturally to speak in languages they didn't previously know. The listeners said, aren't they Galileans? That's a little bit of a dig. Galileans were considered uneducated. They're saying, these dudes don't know how to speak multiple languages. They're speaking multiple languages. They're from all these other places and they're hearing and they're comprehending. Now, in the coming weeks, we will do an in-depth teaching on speaking in tongues. We will do that because it comes up several times in the book of Acts and because it's a topic of some intrigue. So we'll handle that carefully. Right now, though, with this case of tongues, there's just a main thrust that it's important we get. The imagery, the messaging here has to do with the scope of the harvest. Remember it says in verse 5 that they were from every nation under heaven. 
that's hyperbolic or exaggerated language to simply say from the whole known world at the time, that's where they were from. And it was mainly Mediterranean nations that surrounded Israel. So going up to Asia and Asia Minor, over to Italy, Turkey, that area, down to Greece, and then the north of Africa. They were from all that area. So from the author's perspective, it was like the whole known world and they were all there. Why is that important? Because God's end game is important. And God's end game is given to us in Revelation 7 succinctly where we learn After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God's end game is that people would be saved from every single nation in the world. And here we have a microcosm, a small picture of all the nations experiencing feel the sound, the power, and hearing the tumult of God's empowering presence coming amongst his people. Remember that Jesus had already said to these guys in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And again, told them in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So this microcosm of all these people hearing these languages from the places that they're from, both Jews and Gentiles, is supposed to remind us of the scope that this is an international affair. That the church in Jerusalem as cool as that experience was, as comfy as it was in their hometown, as much context and history as they had, they were not meant to be the end to the mission of God. This was a new beginning, a season of harvest, and it was now going beyond Israel and was to include all the nations. This was always God's plan. God had said to Abraham, through you I will bless all the nations. God had said to Israel, you're to be a light to all the nations. Jesus came as a light to the world. And now we, by his empowering presence, are meant to take the message to all the nations. And that's important because Jesus gave us a task to be finished. In Matthew 24, he simply said it this way, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end shall come. So we're supposed to get from this Pentecost experience that this season of harvest that the church was just entering into is for the whole world, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It's not just for Israel, not just for that group of people. And we are supposed to get that Jesus is not just the king of Israel, Because remember the question that they asked in Acts chapter 1 that led Jesus to tell them about the promise of the Father, the Spirit coming upon them. They had said, Jesus, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, you're the king of Israel. Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? What's being communicated here is Jesus is not just the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of the whole dang world. Jesus is the king of kings. So we give careful attention to things like Philippians chapter 2, where it says, For this reason also God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So the reason that the Spirit gave that particular manifestation of them speaking in all these different tongues was a sign that they would know that there was this new season of God's worldwide mission going forward. And that seems clear, but there were some questions, right? In verse 12, well, in verse 12, they ask, what does this mean? But in verse 13, it says, but others were mocking, saying they're full of sweet wine. Let's get down to brass tacks here. All these people witnessed it. Some were just like, what does this mean? And others were like, this is ridiculous. We're reminded later on in the text that we'll get in next week that it was like nine in the morning. And they're saying about this event, these people are just drunk. This is, this is foolishness. I want you to notice how Peter responds to both the criticism and the question. The question being, what does this mean? The criticism seeing this seems like foolishness to me. Peter says in response to that, and we'll dip into next, next week's text to see it. Peter says, listen, this is both Bible and this is for you. This is, for, this is from the Bible and this is for you. Look in verse 16. Peter starts to speak and says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. When asked about what does it mean, and when hearing the criticism, this seems like foolishness, Peter says from the outset, I want you to know two things. This is from scripture, the book of Joel, And this is for you. God said his spirit would be poured out on all mankind. And by saying that, he's taking this stuff away from being, or he's endeavoring to move it from being some weird fringe thing to being normative mainline Christian thing. Right? We often think of these things that are spoken of here, dreams, visions, prophecies, tongues, shaking wind, fire, is like fringe craziness. Peter's saying, this is Bible, and this is for all of us. This is to be normative in the church, God's spirit working in and through his people. And I want you to know, that we have the same conviction as Peter on this thing. As we're in the spring of the Spirit and we're studying the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts and giving some special attention to some stuff around the Spirit and waiting on the Lord and reading Fresh Wind, Fire, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, all this stuff, I want you to know that we have the same intention and values. We want to say together to one another as a church that this is Bible and this is for all of us, that we're going to keep it biblical and we're going to obey the Bible. Some have said in our church at this time, you know, I'm concerned about this new direction where we're going after the Holy Spirit. This seems strange and foreign and I'm, I, I'm unsure about this. And we get that sentiment. Many of us have seen bad examples of church behavior attributed to the Spirit. Many of us have seen abuses. Many of us have seen stuff get out of line. But what we never do as God's people and what we will not do as a church is form theology from a place of fear 
or form doctrine from a place of others' failures. We just won't do that, right? We want scripture to be supreme authority. So we'll come to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about it? And then we will together pursue what scripture says because it's for all of us. Peter says in the face of the question, what does it mean? And in the face of the criticism, this seems like foolishness. He says to them, we're keeping it biblical, dude. This is the book of Joel. And this is for all of you. God's spirit poured out. Does that make sense? You hear what I'm saying there? And then I want you to know what Peter does. Because you could easily get distracted in the violent wind and the cool little flames. Could make it all about the speaking in tongues because that was dope. Like they're speaking in different tongues. Peter, being the leader here, doesn't let that happen. Peter brings it back to what it's all about. After he references the book of Joel and says this is for all of us as God's people, he then preaches Jesus. Let's look at a little bit of his sermon. We're dipping into a text from a couple weeks from now, but look what he says in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus a Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him and in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Now look at Pete. Remember Pete? Before Pentecost, Pete was afraid to admit his association with Jesus. The night of the cross, Peter denied Jesus. Peter cowered when people said, weren't you with Jesus? He hid from that. He ran from that. Now post-Pentecost, Peter is preaching with power. (laughs) Peter is not afraid anymore. And as a good leader, he redirects everyone's attention to what it's about. Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. Peter's telling them it's not about the something that was like wind. It's not about the things that were like fire. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's about Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. That is what it's about. We'll skip ahead in his sermon because he's long-winded and tangential. Look as he continues in verse 31. Actually, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Skip to verse 36 for time's sake. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, bros, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
That is the meaning of Pentecost. That Jesus' work of saving people went forward with power. I want to make sure that we get the grand effect of Pentecost and don't get lost in some of the cool, awesome signs, but we get the grand effect. Number one, just run through these. The whole church was made vividly aware of God's presence, right? Number two, there was boldness to speak the truth about Jesus. Number three, there was a deep conviction of sin amongst the hearers about Jesus. And number four, there was a great harvest. That is the meaning of Pentecost. That is what the baptism with the Holy Spirit is for. That's what it means to receive power from on high, is to accomplish God's purposes and God's power for God's glory. It's about the harvest. It's about the mission. It's about the work. And as we've been reading in Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, the work of God can only be carried out by the power of God. The thing about Pentecost is that it activated the church, propelled the church into God's purposes. And there was a great harvest because that's what God likes to do is save people. We'll read by chapter 4 that the attendance numbers in the church in Jerusalem go up to 5,000 men. That's a growth rate of the 120 from the 120 of 4,167%. That's rocking. And when Jesus said in John 14, 12, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. He is talking about that great harvest. Jesus' ministry on earth was three years and he had little more than 70 followers. The first day of Pentecost, Peter preaches and 3,000 people get saved. Greater works. This is what God intended. And so the question I think that we have to ask ourselves as we study Pentecost and we look at these things is do we want to be activated for the mission of God? Because it's not about the signs. It's not about the wind. It's not about the fire. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's about the mission of God of saving people going forward through his people. So when we think about Holy Spirit power and do I want it and do I need it, we got to ask ourselves, are we willing to be activated into what God wants to do in the world around us? And when we as a church are talking about being in a spring of the Spirit, We're not talking about seeking or cultivating some feeling. Though I am sure that there were intense feelings that went along with this day. Like the wind and the fire and the sound of all the tongues. I'm sure that like hair was standing up on the neck. There was Jesus goosebumps on everybody. Like I'm sure there were some crazy feelings involved in this thing. But when we talk about a spring in the spirit as a church, we're not talking about trying to get some sort of feeling. We're not talking about merely doing this for experience. We are talking about being activated as God's people into God's mission in our community and in the world. It's plain and simple that the work in the Holy Spirit is portrayed to us as the work of exalting and proclaiming Jesus. Jesus told the church that before the Spirit came. He said in John 15, 
When the helper, the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit and his work that he would testify about Jesus and then we, being full of the Holy Spirit, would then also testify about Jesus. So the, all, the ultimate litmus test to try to discern where the Spirit is moving and what the work of the Spirit is, is to see where Christ is most being exalted and glorified and proclaimed. That is the work of the Spirit. Exalting, making much of the person of Jesus. That's the goal of it all. When Jesus said this in John 16, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. This wasn't about some feeling that we might get. It's not about some signs that we might display. Jesus said in the very next verse what it was about. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment in order that they might be saved. The work of the Holy Spirit in us, through us, in the world is proclaiming and exalting the person of Jesus. So listen, I honestly wish that this building would get shaken by something like a violent wind that was God's Spirit. I would be completely pumped if there was like fire All of us gathered here, a few hundred, like looking at each other like, fireheads, oh my gosh. And a manifestation of the gifts. I would love those things. But I also need to remember that is not what the text is about. The text is about the fact that Jesus was then proclaimed in power and people were saved. And in that sense, I want to say to us as a church, I think we need another Pentecost. This was a one-time thing, this thing. But the essence of Pentecost is being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is not a one-time thing. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And two chapters later, we see them being filled with the Spirit again. Acts chapter 4, it says about Peter, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he began to preach again. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And then Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. He says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Little Greek grammar language, that verb filled is in the present tense in the Greek, which means literally you would translate it, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the example of the book of Acts. That's the command of Paul here that we as God's people are to continually be being filled with God's Spirit. The most common prayer that I pray in my life is, God, please forgive me. The second most common prayer that I pray is, God, please fill me with your spirit. Because forgiveness is available in Christ and the fullness of his spirit is available. And we need his spirit to live out 
the Christian life. So when I'm going home and I need compassion and patience for my children, God, fill me with your spirit as I go home. When I'm talking to my wife and I need to be an attentive, listening, caring, helpful, non-opinionated husband, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. When I'm in relational tensions and challenges, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. When I'm out surfing and I want to be someone other than who I am, God, fill me with your Spirit. Every time before I step on the stage, every single Sunday morning, before I come into work, you guys hear me pray it before I preach, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit because that is the great need of God's people, the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And I want the wind, I want the fire, I want the gifts. But what we need is the fruit of Pentecost. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit for that. Our lives are meant to be patterned after the life of Christ. Look at the example that we have of the life of Christ while he was incarnate. Look at a few verses. Luke chapter 3. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of my heaven saying, this is my boy, I love this guy. Chapter 4, that wasn't funny to you. You guys are like dead fish. Chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. And Jesus returned to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And the news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel. So if Jesus in his his earthly ministry had the Spirit come upon him and was full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit, moved in the power of the Spirit, had the Spirit come upon him and anoint him, how much more do we, his followers, need the Spirit? That's our pattern. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I just want us today, I'm finished, but don't get shifty yet because I'm probably not finished. I just want us today to honestly ask God in the right way for another Pentecost. That is that the whole church would be made vividly aware of God's presence. A greater sense of God's presence among us, for surely he is. It's not that he's not attentive to us or present with us. It's that we're often not attentive to him or making ourselves present to him. That we, however God would discern, de- determine, would have a more vivid awareness of his presence. That there be a boldness to speak the truth about Jesus. Both said during the announcements, gosh, evangelism is hard. We want to bite, be, invite people to Easter. That's a challenge. We need Holy Spirit juice to be bold about Jesus to come upon us. And that there come a deep conviction in our community a deep conviction of the sin that when we speak the truth about Jesus, it would be like it was in the book of Acts. It wasn't like, oh, that's good for you. It wasn't, well, I don't know. Oh, that's not for me. There was a conviction of their sin. And they said, bro, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be saved for forgiveness of sins. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children. And that there'd be a great harvest. We've been praying for our community during this season for a time of abundance. Remember Psalm 66, verse 12? We've been through fires and we've been through floods, but you, O Lord, brought us into a place of abundance. And this is what we're talking about. Spiritual abundance, an increase of awareness to his presence and therefore humility before him. 
boldness to speak the truth about Jesus, a conviction of sin in our community and a harvest that people in the coastlands and all the way to the nations would get saved. That is the hope of Pentecost. We need another Pentecost. This looks like and sounds like revival. And since you're reading the book, Jim Cimbala on Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, says revival starts when men and women first inwardly groan, longing to see the status quo changed in themselves and in their churches. They begin to call upon God with insistence. Prayer begets revival, which begets more prayer. It's like Psalm 80, where Asaph bemoans the sad state of his time, the broken walls, the burnt vineyards. Then in verse 18, he pleads, revive us and we will call upon your name. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of prayer. Only when we are full of the spirit do we feel the need for God everywhere we turn. Man, and that's the truth. We have a real need for God everywhere we turn with our coworkers who need to know about Jesus, with our children and their wanderings, with our marriage and its challenges, with our relationships in our church and our vocations. We need God's power. And God's mission is not only preaching the gospel to those who don't know. God's mission is also wholeness in your marriage. God's mission is also fruitfulness in your parenting. God's mission is also your sexual purity and sanctification. God's mission is also generosity in your finances. God's mission is also freedom from bitterness and forgiving others as we have been forgiven. This is also God's mission. So what is your great need today before God? Is it something in your marriage? Is it this broken relationship? Is it this unending want and longing? Is it a wayward child? Is it the hope for people that you work with? What is it? God's power is available to us. God's mission is in all those things. So we're going to take a moment. Again, don't get shifty. We're going to take a moment and just pray. I'll just let you guys pray by yourselves for a moment. You can pray with someone you came with if that's what you want to do. But whatever your great need is, whatever you want to invite Jesus and his power into today, just ask him. You might not have the right phraseology. You might like, I don't know, is it, am I asking for baptism or filled or like, what am I, what a fire, what am I saying? You might not know, but your heavenly father who loves you knows. Just bring before him your great need and invite his healing, empowering presence and the work of his restoring mission into it. Ask him for that. And then pray little prayers of boldness about activation. God, activate me as a witness in my family. Activate and empower me as a witness in my workplace. Activate me in my community. To the nations, God, activate me. So we'll just give you like two minutes to pray these prayers. And then the worship team's gonna come up and we're going to sing this song, Spirit of the Living God, that'll be new for us, but it's a prayer song. So we'll be praying for God's Spirit to fall on us all together, as it did here in Pentecost. They were each filled with the Spirit. God was touching them in different needs, but God's Spirit was also coming upon all of them in some way that was glorious. So we'll sing that as a prayer, okay? So two minutes just praying on your own, and then we'll be right back.